Well, it's wonderful for us to be together once again on the first of the week. We're here to celebrate the victory of our king. Our country's been so wrapped up in the turmoil of trying to elect a temporary leader. And whether you don't like the guy who's going out or don't like the guy who's going in or whatever your position is, today we get to celebrate the victory of our king. And that's the reason we really are serving here. Uh, we're not here because we're Americans. We're not here because we have these blessings that God has given us. They're great. But we have greater blessings, and we need to be focused on those. We've been studying through the book of Acts in our adult class here in the auditorium, and in a few moments we'll be looking at these verses that were read in Acts 9, verses 10 through 18. If you haven't turned there yet, go ahead and be looking there, because we'll be focused on that text. It is great to see so many out this morning. What a blessing. We have visitors with us, visitors of family with us as well. It is so good to have you with us. Those who are online, we're excited to see you as well. It is a blessing for us to share in these things. This is what God has determined for us to do to stir one another up to love and good works. And this is the best way we can do it because it's the way he says we need to do it. And so we'll be together looking at his word. And I pray that this will be an encouragement to you. These texts, when you begin to look at these people that God has presented to us through the book of Acts, ought to be encouraging. We see men who are being transformed by the gospel and what that does in their lives. And here we meet this certain disciple named Ananias. It's interesting in the, the reading that Luke did, the, the word certain is not brought out. There's a nuance in the Greek there that comes out three times in this text in, the, in, the, in the Acts chapter 9. There's this certain disciple at Damascus here in verse 10. We saw today a certain man uh, named Aeneas there in verse 33, and then another certain disciple in verse 36 here in chapter 9. We meet these certain people. And it's interesting how the Bible just describes them as certain people. Here's this man, Ananias, and he's going to do this incredible thing. He's this very helpful thing. But what's interesting about him is he's, he's just this guy. He's just this disciple. It doesn't say there's Ananias the elder or Ananias the apostle or Ananias even the evangelist. It's just this disciple, Ananias. But just a disciple? What a wonderful thing to be, a disciple of Christ. And that's who this man is. And this task he's going to be given by the Lord is something he certainly wouldn't have imagined, something he even sort of chafes at at first, but he is a disciple, and he will obey his master. What's amazing about this is he's just a disciple, but he is eager and ready to serve. And when, when God calls on him, the Lord says to him here uh, in a vision, he responds, here I am, Lord, in verse 10, not verse 11. Here I am. He's ready to go. And of course, this is reminiscent of the great disciples, the examples we have of disciples in the Old Testament. As Abraham is called in Genesis 22 to go take Isaac up and sacrifice him, before that, God calls him. He says, here I am. I'm ready. And he certainly received a task he would not have expected, to take his only son, the son he loves, and take him up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there. We all know how that story turned out, where God relieved Isaac of that and gave him a substitute sacrifice and foreshadowed so greatly what happens with us. In Exodus 3, as God called to Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, Moses said, here I am, when he heard the Lord calling. Isaiah 6, when Isaiah, the great prophet, and so many others were called by God. They were ready disciples, ready to, to go at a moment's notice to the service of their master and their Lord. And so we see the same thing with Ananias. A disciple is, in fact, a ready servant of the Lord and his people. In Mark chapter 9 and 10, it's interesting how Jesus, as he's talking with the apostles, and he's been mentioning his his coming uh, demise, his leaving them, I won't say demise, uh, he's going to die and then come back. 
But he's been telling them he's going to leave them for a while. And as he's been talking about this, they're not sure what to make of it. And they begin to talk about who's going to be greatest among them, who's going to be the leader. And twice, Jesus straightens them out in their thinking. In Mark chapter 9, verse 35, he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last, last of all, and servant of all. A disciple of mine will show his discipleship in service, not in someone calling him something great, but in his becoming something great, a servant. And also in Mark chapter 10 and verse 43, in a similar context, Jesus uh, straightens out their thinking by saying, uh, in verse uh, 42, Jesus called them to himself, this is Mark 10, 42, and said, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. That's what a disciple is. That's what a minister, that's what the word means, the ministry of defense or the ministry of the public. They're supposed to be servants. But we hear those words and we think of government offices and we think of people who are wanting to be served. That is not the way this word is meant to be. That's how the Gentiles think. That is not how the disciple of God is to think. And so Ananias is ready to serve. Here I am, Lord. Even though he is only a disciple, we find out from the text, he knows enough to teach Saul about salvation. Jesus appeared to Saul and said, go into Damascus where you'll be told what you need to do. And the first thing he was told was how to become a Christian. And then he was told what kind of mission he was going to be sent on. And so we have this man who's not an evangelist by trade, if you will. He's not an elder by position, not least that we can tell from the text. Certainly not one of the apostles. He's actually helping a man who's going to become an apostle. He's a mere disciple, yet he knows enough to teach Saul about salvation. When Saul recounts this event later, he tells us some of the things that Ananias told him. Acts, uh, Acts chapter 22, verses 14 through 16. Really, I begin in verse 12. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me, and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will, and see the just one, and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And also in chapter 26, this is Paul recounting this, and so these are his words about what Ananias said to him. In Acts 26, verses 19 and 20, as he's recounting all of this vision now, he says, King Agrippa was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and to do works befitting repentance. Where did he learn those things? Well, first from Ananias. And so Ananias knew enough as just a plain old disciple, he knew enough to teach Paul, Saul, about salvation. A disciple simply follows and shares the master's teaching. In Acts chapter 9, as, as God had called to Ananias and told him what he was going to need to do and how he was going to have to go out to this man Saul who had been praying and had been waiting to hear from Ananias now, Ananias agrees to go, and when he goes, he just says the same things Jesus told him to say. That's what a disciple does. He repeats the master's teaching. In Matthew chapter 28, it's interesting to me, at the end of this gospel, as Jesus is preparing them for what we call the Great Commission, as he's about to send them out, he's already resurrected. And this is his, one of his final conversations with them before being taken up into heaven. And I love the, the way that he describes what they're going to be doing. 
Matthew 28, starting at verse 18, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Notice what he didn't say here. I think this is interesting. He didn't say, teaching them all things that I have commanded you. Eventually, that will be part of what they're doing. But what he said is, teach them to observe all things that I've commanded. There's a difference in those two things. <laughs> you can teach someone a checklist of doctrines. You can put a whole list down of all the things Jesus has taught. Or you can teach them to have the heart of a disciple. That whatever Jesus commands, that's what I want to do. And that's what we really begin seeing in Acts chapter 2. In fact, the doctrine had not been revealed yet in Acts chapter 2. But those men were cut to the heart and understood Jesus was Lord and said, then what do we do? And then all the following days, as the Lord was revealing his will, since they were now disciples, they said, here I am. Tell me more. What else must I do? It's the heart of someone who's willing to observe all things that Jesus commands. Sometimes that's where we get it wrong as we're teaching. We want to teach people the points of doctrine. We want to bring them to understand how we do things here, and then maybe they can become good Christians too. But we fail to teach them the desire to do what the Lord says to do. We fail, fail to show them the Lord. We fail to show them Jesus as Lord. 1 Peter 4 verse 11 says that as disciples, we're to be speaking as the oracles of God. We teach the things that He teaches. We say the things that He said. His Word has the power to convince and convert, not mine. And so the good disciple should be able just to speak the things that he heard that caused him to desire to serve the Lord. And that's what we see Ananias doing. When you think about the situation here, you really need the right kind of disciple to teach somebody like Saul. You need the certain disciple for this. He is certainly not the kind of person you would expect to hear the gospel. He's trying to squash it out. He's trying to end the gospel. Saul says of himself later in 1 Timothy 1 in verse 13, that he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. He's got a rebellious heart, not interested in hearing those things. In fact, he's going to make sure you never speak of it again. Put an end to Stephen, and was seeking to do that with many others. So when God says, you go talk to him, <laughs> you've got to be the right kind of disciple for that. You need to be the certain disciple. So, of course, Ananias was afraid to go, verses 13 and 14. Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. Here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call in your name. Me? <laughs> Don't you understand, Lord? I'm one of your disciples, and that's exactly who he's come to get. Are you sure? <laughs> Are you sure? But he trusts the Lord, and he trusts his word. And what we see in the next verses is, as the Lord says, go, because I've chosen him for this, Ananias goes. <laughs> when the Lord says, this is what I want you to do, Ananias, as a disciple, doesn't say, no, but I'd rather do it this way, or, or can't you just go get somebody else? I'm the disciple. You're the master. Then I'll do what you say. That's the heart <laughs> that a disciple needs. So he trusted the Lord, and he trusted his word, and he went into this man who could have had him killed. That's what he came there for. I want you to think about this for a moment. And I, and I love the way the Bible presents Ananias here. When you begin to think about some others, in John chapter 1, we have these, at the outset, we have these little accounts of people coming to Jesus. Now, John the Baptist has been teaching already, and several of John's disciples begin to see the Christ. John has been pointing out, here's the one who takes away the sin of the world. And so they begin to, to call each other. 
And so as it took an Ananias to, to go into Saul, it took an Andrew to appeal to Peter. John chapter 1, verses 40 through 42. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah, which is translated to Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated to stone. But it took someone like Andrew to bring Simon Peter. <laughs> Andrew knows his brother. He knows the kind of temperament he's got. And so he laid out this, this uh, uh, organized argument. We've, we've been looking at the scriptures all this time. We found the one who fits all that. Come, come and see with me. And he brings him. And then going on 45 through 49, Philip finds Nathanael and says to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. And so we have Nathanael coming to Jesus because of Philip, who was the certain disciple for Nathanael. And then Barnabas brings along John Mark even when the Apostle Paul has said, no, he's not useful for the work at this point. He abandoned us before. It is Barnabas who decides, then I'll take him with me. <laughs> so it takes a certain kind of disciple to reach certain kinds of people. And God brings those people together. Consider for a moment, who would God des designate you <laughs> as the certain disciple? You're a disciple of the Lord. You know what it took for you to become a disciple. Then you know what it takes for someone else to become a disciple. It's not because you spend years studying theology and all the depths of doctrine that you can teach somebody. It's because you are a disciple that you can teach somebody who the master is because you know who he is. You're serving him and you can show him to somebody else. Who would God designate you to be that certain disciple for? The question is, do we trust the Lord enough when he brings people to us that we can be disciples toward, that we can teach also how to be disciples? Do we trust him and his word enough to let it do the work that it's supposed to do. In Exodus 4, certainly, when God called to Moses, he said, well, I can't speak. I'm not a man who knows how to speak eloquently. And God said, who made your mouth? Wasn't it me? <laughs> and we find out later when Stephen is talking about Moses in Acts chapter 7, he actually was trained to be eloquent by the, by the Egyptians. He was making excuses. And so God said, yeah, I, I made your mouth. You're going to speak for me. <laughs> I'll give you the words even. And he did. He told Pharaoh, told him what to say to Pharaoh and told him what to say to the Israelites. In Romans chapter 1, even more simple for us if we truly trust in this, and we ought to. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Do we trust the power of the gospel to do what the gospel is meant to do? Now, perhaps we're looking at too much at the failures, if you will, where the gospel is preached to somebody and they don't believe, or they reject, or they say, well, I don't, I don't want to do that. Okay. It also has done what it was sent to do. The gospel is a dividing line. It'll, it'll bring someone to belief, or it'll show someone that they don't want to come to belief. We just need to trust to let it do what God has intended for it to do. And that's what Ananias does. He doesn't really think Saul <laughs> is going to be serious. He's come here to kill disciples. Yet with the power of the gospel and God's telling him to go, he went. What's interesting about all this, if you look at Acts 9 more carefully, is that God has really arranged for Ananias and Saul to meet. 
And he's been telling both of them about it. In Ananias' vision, he says, Saul has been having a vision in which he sees a man named Ananias coming into him. So he's telling Ananias, I've already prepared this. He's giving him a really behind-the-scenes view. We don't always get the behind-the-scenes views. But Ananias and Saul were brought together specifically by God. But so were Peter and Cornelius. Cornelius is praying. An angel comes and says, go send for Peter. Peter's on the rooftop praying. He has a vision. This three times this sheet comes down. Three Gentiles show up right after that. And he figures out, wait a second, the Holy Spirit was saying, these are the unclean that are now clean. I must go with them. God has brought Peter and Cornelius together. God brought Philip and a unit together in the middle of the desert. He sent an angel to Philip and said, go out to the desert. Philip started to go. The Holy Spirit came and said, run to that chariot. And he did. God is bringing people together all the time. The point is, there really are no chance encounters in God's design. And so I ask you, whom has God arranged for you to meet? Who is it that God has put in your sphere of influence at work, at school, on vacation, in your day-to-day -day activities? Sometimes we get this idea that I am a disciple, but I'm no, I'm no evangelist. I'm not an elder. I'm not an apostle. What if we all thought, I'm not an apostle, so I'm not going to teach? Well, it would have ended after the first century. No, the disciples were taught to teach, and not just the evangelists. Ephesians 4 says the evangelists were teaching the other disciples how to do their work in the ministry of making the body grow. That was the whole point of the evangelist and the pastors and teachers, was building up the saints so they could do their work in the ministry. The evangelist, in this case me or Grady, don't work where you work. I'm not going to meet the people you're sitting next to at a cubicle every day that sees the change that your life is because you serve Christ from what the other lives they see around them. What an opportunity. I'm not going to be at your school where your school friends are, but you are. What an opportunity to influence them. When you're on vacation, likely I'm not going to be with you. I'd be glad to go along if you'd like to offer, but I'm not going to be with you. And I say that like on vacation. Who's thinking about the gospel on vacation? Well, I hope disciples are. I hope that's exactly what you're thinking about while you're on vacation, is serving the Lord. I know of a church that began, in fact, it's where my son was born. We ended up going up there to help early in their infancy. That began from the work of a man who had these pamphlets that he really liked. And so he began to make photocopies of them with his own money. And on vacation, he would walk around handing them out to people while he was going down through the, through the it was a beach town, going down the boardwalk. Just hand them out. Four years later, there was a group of people that had been reading these. They finally decided, this doesn't match the doctrine that our church likes. We're going to throw them away. And they handed them to a guy they knew liked to study the Bible. He became a Christian. There were five others in that town that were converted. Then they ended up calling my family to come up and, and help them for several years. We, we lived there, and my son was born there. Because of a man on vacation, handing out pamphlets at his own cost. He was doing what he could to help, and he would stop and talk to people. But he knew he wasn't going to be there very long, but those pamphlets would stay. And they had addresses on them, and they had Bible verses on them, which was more important than the address even. And a church grew out of that. Sometimes we think those things will never work. They do. We never know what opportunity we may have that God has arranged for us to be there. I used to tell my wife whenever we were on vacation, I'm going to put a lot of uh, little flyers here and a lot of these little cards with my name on them here because this would be a great place to live. And there might be Christians here someday, and now we can come back and work with them. <laughs> it's kind of a joke, but seriously, we're spreading the seed. That's one way we can do it. How simple is that? In our day-to-day -day activities, it's, it's shameful sometimes to think about how many arranged opportunities we have where God has brought people to us. The cashier we see all the time at the Giant Eagle or Great Eagle, whatever that store's called. The Walmart people that we run into all the time. What an opportunity. 
And here is arrangement of Ananias and Saul to come together. It's interesting how much this fulfills this promise that God made to seekers in Matthew chapter 7. This text has always caught my attention. And I'll show you why specifically in just a moment. But Matthew 7, 7 through 11, this is a promise. This is Jesus speaking in, a, in terms of something that is going to happen. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. What man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Wow. What are they asking for? Look at the next verse. This is beautiful. Sometimes we don't think about this verse in its context, at least not in Matthew's. Therefore... Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Is there anybody in here that didn't end up becoming a Christian because someone came and taught the gospel to them? It's impossible. You need the gospel to become a Christian. In some way, someone preached to you. Did you not want someone to bring you the gospel of salvation? Whatever you would want men to do to you, do to them, this verse says, in the context of people are knocking and asking and trying to find and I'm carrying around this treasure, as Paul says, in an earthen vessel and saying, no, this is mine. <laughs> no, this is yours. We need to be sharing. And that's exactly the context of this golden rule, if you will, in Matthew's account. It's right in the context of people who are seeking for the good things that God has to offer. Well, we can show them. <laughs> We've got them with us. So God arranged for them to meet, just as he arranges all day long for us to be around others. What's amazing there? This disciple, Ananias, this certain disciple, he obeyed God's plan for him. And he was told directly. We're not always told exactly how directly. We don't get to see behind the scenes, but we understand God is working. There is no chance with God. But Ananias gets this directive from God, and he obeys. And God sent him with clear instructions. Boy, this would be hard. <laughs> Go find this man who's looking for you, <laughs> by the way. Go teach him. Go heal him. <laughs> Even though he came here to harm people, I want you to heal him. You know, the man that came to arrest Jesus, Malchus, had his ear cut off. Jesus picks it up and heals him on the spot. <laughs> we, we heal people. We're not here to condemn. We're here to bring people to salvation. And so, go heal this man who would come here to harm you. So Ananias would be used to heal him physically. In verse 12, you'll go to him so that he may receive his sight. In verse 18, he said, uh, I've come that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, the scales fell from his eyes. He went to heal him physically, and certainly Jesus and many of the other servants in the first century did these physical signs. We were talking about that earlier. They did that in conjunction with the preaching of the gospel. It's a confirmation of what God is offering. It's an immediate confirmation of the gospel. Uh, Mark 16, verse 20 says that it was God working with them, confirming the word of this gospel through the signs. Paul is receiving the gospel, and he has this, this miraculous confirmation. He'd already been, been uh, hit with a miracle that made him blind. But now the miracle to heal him, now he can clearly see. So there's no more impediment to his being able to see the gospel as it's revealed to him. And so Ananias went to heal him physically, but especially went to heal him spiritually. Verse 17, he, uh, he says that I was sent that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So the scales fell from his eyes and then he received his sight and was baptized. The real opening 
of Saul's eyes was from the message of the gospel. <laughs> that is what opened his eyes. There was the physical healing. But what really happened to Saul that day, he talks about a little bit in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, he's not mentioning this, this moment, but listen to the way he describes the preaching of the gospel here. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. Here is Saul the Pharisee, a veil over his face as he looks at this news of the gospel that's now been lifted because of the preaching of Ananias. Here's what he writes later. For if what is passing away, 2 Corinthians 3.11, was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses who, is, who put a veil over his face so the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Wow. <laughs> who better to see that than the one who had that veil removed? The scales were gone, the gospel was preached, and now he can see clearly, finally, what he couldn't see as a Pharisee, covering the veil of Moses over his eyes. In Acts 22, then, he lays that out. He lays the gospel out just the way it was presented to him. And he tries to get others to see what he can see. What's amazing then, I want you to think about this for a moment. Saul obeyed the gospel because Ananias was obedient to God and went into Saul. Others will obey the gospel because of our obedience to the gospel. That's an amazing thing to see. In my own life, I had heard so many times people talking about the Bible, and I had rejected it. But I saw people living it as they were teaching me they were living what they taught, and I'd never seen that before. Their obedience convinced me there's something to be said about these words that are just here in the Bible. They were living words, and I saw them effectively lived out in the life of those who taught me. Romans 1.17 says that power of the gospel is from faith to faith. <laughs> that is, those who have embraced it share it with others. Once I've embraced it, it grows in me, and then I share it with others as well. Salvation from faith to faith. So as we look at this kind of character sketch of Ananias, we're not told a whole lot about him. He's a certain disciple. We don't know much. But what we know is so encouraging. I love these character sketches in Acts. He's a willing disciple. He allowed himself to become a very valuable tool in God's service for the sake of righteousness. And it was hard. It wasn't something he would have chosen just to go into this man who might kill him. But he went in. And what a difference it made because through his obedient service, the apostle Paul was converted. Now, who's been converted because of the Apostle Paul's work? You have. <laughs> All of us in here. What a thing because of one disciple who is willing to go serve and help this other. Who might be out there that you have been put in the place to help that someday might reach out and help so many others? What an amazing thing to think about, how the multiplication of the gospel works because of the obedience of one. <laughs> of each of us, if we're obedient, and we're reaching out to others and they're obedient, where does it end? It ends in the amazing kingdom of God. What a blessing to be a part of that promise. Maybe you desire to become a useful disciple in the Lord's body. That may mean that you desire to be more useful than you have been. You're a disciple, but you're just kind of a disciple in name. Well, that's not good enough. He is the master. He is the Lord. He's the king of kings. And he's called you to something so much better 
than just sitting in a church building and hearing some beautiful language once in a while and singing some beautiful songs. He wants you to be an active part of his body. And he wants you to be reaching out and helping others who are lost and so lost in this world. They can come to him as well. If you'd like to become more useful of a disciple, we'd like to help you with that. If you're not a disciple already, but you'd like to, you'd like to serve this great God that we serve. If you're willing to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, to come forward to have your sins removed as you repent from them, have them washed away in baptism, we'd love to help you with that as well. I don't know what your need may be, but please serve the Lord and help, let us help you to do that. Whatever your need may be today, make it known to us and we'll be glad to encourage you. We're going to sing this song.